Major General William T. Sherman, the officer who disemboweled the Confederacy with his marches across Georgia and through the Carolinas, understood the nature of total war, and that uniquely qualified him to offer assessment of one of the most remarkable and yet controversial officers in all of the Confederacy. During the war, Sherman spat out, That devil must be hunted down and killed if it costs 10,000 lives and bankrupts the federal treasury. And later, in reflection, offered that that devil, militarily speaking, was the most remarkable man the Civil War produced on either side. For this episode, part one, of the man and officer who, particularly in these times, remains a lightning rod for knee-jerk reaction, both pro and con. This is the story of the Wizard of the Saddle. This is the story of Nathan Bedford Forrest. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, Stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. It was a Saturday, June 13, 1863, and there, in the Masonic Hall in Columbia, Tennessee, Lieutenant A. Willis Gould met then-Brigadier General Nathan Bedford Forrest to protest his transfer. Forrest felt, maybe unfairly, that Gould was responsible for losing two guns at Sand Mountain on the last day of April earlier that year. To talk, they moved into a vast hallway where they could speak more privately. Gould was angry, and afraid the transfer would imply cowardice. As he put it, no man can accuse me of being a coward and both of us live. Four boys on the stone steps outside the building were now witnesses. With Forrest back to the door, they heard, It's false, or that's all false. The angry tone made Forrest react. His left hand went into his left pocket to draw a penknife he had been toying with and picking his teeth earlier. His right flew out to ward off what he believed would be an attack. And he was right. Gould fumbled with a pistol he had in his right pocket of a long linen coat he was wearing. As he struggled to free the weapon, Forrest lunged at the lieutenant and in the same instant opened the penknife with his teeth pistol, still not completely free, discharged, and Forrest was hit just above his left hip. He grimaced, grabbed the wrist of Gould's pistol hand, which was now free, and with his right hand, forced the lieutenant's right hand upward. In the same instant, he plunged the penknife deep into Gould's right side between his ribs. The young lieutenant broke free, staggered through the hall, out the door, and burst into the street where two civilian surgeons, one a relative, took him into a tailor shop to treat him. His wound spurted, an artery severed. Forrest tried to follow, but several officers swerved him into a nearby doctor's office. And inside, there a surgeon pronounced his wound fatal. 
to which Forrest thundered, No damn man shall kill me and live. Seething with revenge, he burst from the office, spotted a horse tied to a railing, rummaged through an attached haversack, and produced a pistol. Now armed, he stalked after his attacker. Forrest Quartermaster, who watched while Gould was treated, shouted, General, that damn scoundrel is not much hurt. And that poured fuel on his raging fire. A civilian tried to stop Forrest and got, Get out of my way. I am mortally wounded and will kill the man who shot me. A subordinate now gave him another pistol. And locating the tailor shop, Forrest stormed into the packed room, waving both pistols and everyone scattered. A panicked ghoul rolled from the table on which he was being treated and headed for the back alley. As he lunged, Forrest fired a round that missed him but struck a bystander in the leg. The wounded general now turned, went out the front of the shop, and hoped he could cut Gould off in the alley. Forrest stalked into and down the alley and found the lieutenant behind the building, collapsed in some high weeds, glaring down. Forrest probed him with his foot and, satisfied he was sufficiently wounded, moved back to the tailor shop. Later, a more thorough inspection revealed the round that hit him missed his intestines. It had slipped around his pelvic bone and lodged in the muscle of his hip. Relieved, he told the surgeon who wanted to remove it, It's nothing but a damn little pistol ball. Let it alone. Then, ordered others to find Gould and tend to him at Forrest's own expense. But Gould would not be so lucky. The pen knife had penetrated his lung. Pneumonia set in, and he would die. Twelve days later, Forrest was back in the saddle. Indeed, no man kills me and lives. Welcome to the violent world of Nathan Bedford Forrest. In many respects, he was the very reincarnation of another feisty frontier aristocrat, Andrew Jackson, both Jekyll and Hyde's. Both could be courtly, gentlemen, but when challenged or threatened, both could turn into raging volcanoes. Both could swing instantly from passiveness to overbearing bullies filled with homicidal wrath. The two would have enjoyed the other or killed each other. Both had similar paths, lowly births and adult responsibility as children. Both literally raised themselves by their own bootstraps. Both could be vain, and both possessed a testy impatience with failure. They were self-made men with a fierce frontier sense of independence and justice. During Forrest's Civil War career, he attacked with fury. Possessed with great single-mindedness, he was decisive under fire. As a leader, he was solid, for he planned intently. When thinking, one would find him motionless with chin on chest, or he might walk methodically in a circle. Once, while lost in thought and circling, he was repeatedly interrupted by one who wanted to start a conversation. Annoyed, Forrest knocked the man out with a single blow and then continued to circle, stepping over the man's fallen body each time his route brought him back to that spot. 
and he did it all in complete silence. At six one and a half and only 180 pounds, his constitution was superhuman. He survived four major wounds and countless minor. He had 29 horses shot out from under him and personally killed 30 of the enemy. It seems he understood the psychology of battle. For example, he made big shows and allowed prisoners to intentionally escape so they would report inflated numbers. He demanded surrender, and if it did not come, warned, I cannot be held responsible for your command. When enraged, his face and eyes filled with blood. Not only did the enemy fear him, so did his own men. In terms of strategy and tactics, Forrest held a low opinion of West Pointer's conventional minds. He used common sense to illustrate. He used the horse to move quickly from one spot to another, and if the situation required, wanted his cavalry dismounted to fight his infantry. If charged, he charged and preferred the use of pistols rather than sabers. To him, and I quote, War means fighting, and fighting means killing. Seeking to intimidate his enemy, he wanted to shock, overawe, demoralize, and as he put it, get him scared and then keep the skier on. And to do that, he wanted to hit his enemy on the front, and if he could, simultaneously on both flanks. And though it is a misquote, but it is applied to him, the story persists that when asked, how to be victorious, he explained, get there the fustest with the mostest. All these real and fancied, if you will, Forestisms speak volumes of military training and textbooks, yet his childhood belied all of that. He was born on a Friday, the 13th of July, 1821, in Bedford County, some 50 miles southeast of Nashville, Tennessee, at a place known as Chapel Hill. He had eight brothers and three sisters. One, Fanny, was a twin. Two of his eight brothers and all three of his sisters died of typhoid. At 15, he found himself supporting his widowed mother and surviving siblings. Neighbors remembered that whether playing or being spanked, his yell was always the loudest. Even a child, an event and lesson that stayed with him. When thrown from an unruly colt into the midst of a pack of vicious dogs, he was surprised when they scattered. The realization, the lesson, discovering the advantage of bold attack. His formal education consisted of about six months of schooling. An inspection of his war correspondence would show as much. Once, when a soldier sent his third request for a furlough, Forrest wrote, I told you twice, goddammit, no. Twice was spelled T-W-I-S-T and no, K-N-O-W. As an entrepreneurial adult, Forrest made a great deal of money in cotton, real estate, livestock, and, yes, slave trading. In slave trading alone, he made anywhere from fifty to $96,000 a year, an astronomical amount today. 
As mentioned before, like Andrew Jackson, he was the quintessential Tennessee frontier aristocrat. In the 1860 United States Census, Forrest was listed as a planter. He owned $171,000 in Memphis real estate, and his own estate was valued at $90,000. Yet, despite his rough-hewn character, you might be surprised that he refused alcohol and tobacco. His language was saucy, profane, but not obscene. He respected the clergy, women, and absolutely loved children. And he possessed a pointed wit, as illustrated by this story. At a dinner during the war, a woman asked, General, why is your hair gray while your beard remains dark? And he answered, because I work my brains more than I work my jaws. And despite all the rough edges in his demeanor, he could be quite the knight in shining armor. On a Sunday in 1845, near Hernando, Mississippi, he spied two women and a slave stuck in the middle of a stream. On the creek's edge, two men on horseback tried to help, but neither wanted to soil their Sunday garb. Forrest waded in, and after asking permission of the two ladies, carried them to shore. He then helped the driver lighten the load, and putting a shoulder behind the wheel, helped to push the carriage to shore. As he reached the bank, Forrest chastised the two men as useless and threatened them with physical harm if they didn't leave. Uh, They did. One lady was the widowed Elizabeth Montgomery, and the other her 18-year-old daughter, Mary Ann. Not long thereafter, Forrest asked her uncle and guardian for her hand in marriage. The stunned uncle answered, Why, Bedford, I cannot consent. You cuss and gamble, and Marianne is a Christian girl. Ashamed of his gambling and profanity, he responded, I know it, and that's just why I want her. The uncle relented. They made their home in northwestern Mississippi, just south of the Tennessee-Mississippi state line, and in Hernando. When secession and war came, Forrest enlisted. On Friday, June the 14th, 1861, just shy of 40, he volunteered for the 7th Tennessee Cavalry with his youngest brother and 15-year-old son, William. All three were privates. Five more brothers and two half-brothers would also see service. Tall and lean with hazel eyes, he was a man of striking physicality. With his money, presence, and savvy, he wasn't a private for very long. In fact, with his wealth and charisma, Forrest raised and mounted a unit of 650 men at his own expense. His recruiting poster included... Come on, boys, if you want a heap of fun and to kill some Yankees. In October of 1861, his men elected him their lieutenant colonel. When the Confederates evacuated the state of Kentucky, he and his unit were ordered to Dover, Tennessee, and Fort Donaldson. There on Friday, February the 14th, 1862, with U.S. Grant besieging the Confederate fort on the Cumberland River, his command helped to open three possible escape routes, but incompetent Brigadier General Gideon Pillow wasted every opportunity.
During the fight, Forrest was nothing short of reckless. His mount took seven wounds and literally from loss of blood dropped dead under him. His second horse was killed with an artillery shell ripped through the poor animal. The overcoat he wore had 15 bullet holes, and when he learned that the fort was to be surrendered, he barked bitterly, I did not come here for the purpose of surrendering my command. So, early the 16th, he led his 500 men and others, totaling about 3,500, out through icy water up to their saddle skirts and mud half-leg deep in places. He led them southwest from the fort on a river road that others thought impassable. Forrest believed that two-thirds of the 12,000 who defended the fort could have used the same route. His daring escape brought recognition and promotion to colonel of the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry. Their first fight was to be on the Tennessee River at a place known as Pittsburgh Landing, Shiloh. His unit was positioned on the Confederate right at Lick Creek. They were to monitor the roads that led to the southwest. For hours they waited while nearby the battle raged. Finally, an impatient and outraged Forrest shouted, Boys, do you hear that musketry and that artillery? It means that our friends are falling by the hundreds at the hands of the enemy, and we are here guarding a damned creek. Let's go and help them. What do you say? He led his force into a contested battlefield area known as the Hornet's Nest, where he assisted in the flanking and capture of some 2,200 Union soldiers under the command of Brigadier General Benjamin Prentiss. With the eventual collapse of the Federal line late Sunday, April the 6th, Forrest men pursued all the way to the 50-gun last line of U.S. Grant's defense near the Tennessee River. That night of the 6th, Forrest sent men wearing captured Union overcoats into the Federal lines. Amidst bloodied and wearied men in blue, he and his men witnessed the timely arrival of some 15,000 men from Major General Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio. Armed with that crucial information, Forrest returned to warn of Buell's arrival. To anyone who would listen, he spouted, If we don't attack, we'll be whipped like hell before 10 o'clock tomorrow. He found Confederate Generals John C. Breckinridge and William J. Hardy, but never the man who was now in overall command, P.G.T. Beauregard. Forrest's daring reconnaissance and startling fine were ignored, and his warning proved to be prophecy. By 2 p.m. of the next day, the 7th, the reinforced weight of Union numbers forced the some 20-mile retreat of the Confederate Army back south to Corinth, Mississippi. Forrest and his mounted element were ordered to serve as rear guard. It was no easy task. For the next day, Tuesday, April the 8th, Brigadier General William T. Sherman's 5th Division led a Union probe. The two forces clashed some four miles south of the battlefield in an area where felled timber stretched for some 200 yards. When Federal skirmishers advanced, Forrest ordered a charge of some 350 of his men. He and they drove back the infantry skirmishers and broke up an Illinois cavalry unit. 
with them and full of rage and fury, Forrest advanced beyond his men and then realized in the enemy's midst he would have to shoot his way out. In an effort to do so, he took a rifle ball to his left side, just above the hip, lodging near his spine. With his right leg numbed and hanging useless in the stirrup, he heard Federals shouting, Kill him! Shoot him! Stick him! Knock him off his horse! But he managed to turn, clear a path for himself with a pistol, and gallop back out of danger. In 1902, the story was perhaps embellished when a Memphis biographer added to the escape. According to that Memphian, as the wounded Forrest turned to go, he grabbed a small federal soldier, lifted him, and used him as a human shield to escape. We do know this. To recover from his wound at fallen timbers, Forrest was ordered to take a 60-day furlough. He returned to active service painfully three weeks later. The next month after his return, he was scouting federal lines around Corinth, Mississippi. And while doing so, his mount jumped a log. The pain from his wound at fallen timbers was so intense that his regimental surgeon removed the lodged bullet. The surgery was done without anesthesia. And two weeks later, Nathan Bedford Forrest was back in the saddle. It was about this time that orders came for his unit to cut Don Carlos Buell's federal supply line, which was the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad, and which ran through Murfreesboro, Tennessee. In addition, Forrest planned to raid the federally held town, which was some 35 miles to the southeast of Nashville. His 1,400-man force left Chattanooga Sunday, July 6, 1862. They covered 100 miles in six days to get at elements of Brigadier General Thomas T. Crittenton's 934-man garrison on the 13th. That day, it was Forrest's 41st birthday. As Forrest and his men approached, they found the Union force divided, one unit in town and the other in nearby camps. He also learned that several citizens were being held against their will in the center of town. He had to be careful. He did not want to compromise the safety of those held hostage. He also did not want to attack one force as it would alert the other, and he did not want to divide his force made up of men from Georgia, Texas, Tennessee, and Kentucky. And so, Forrest sent a note to the force in town, the 9th Michigan under Colonel John G. Parkhurst. It stated, that the other Union force outside of town had been captured and that Parkhurst should surrender. If not, as Forrest put it, I will have every man put to the sword. He also included, You are aware of the overpowering force I have at my command, and this demand is made to prevent the effusion of blood. Parkhurst surrendered himself and his 134 men. Now, Forrest used the same ploy on the force west of town under the command of Colonel H.C. Leslie. Leslie, unaware of Forrest's true numbers and Parkhurst's surrender, gave up as well. In the roundup, Forrest, with only some 1,400 men, liberated the town, 
saved its citizens, and took into captivity around 1,200 men, 60 wagons, 300 mules, 150 to 200 horses, a field battery of four guns, and stores that amounted to $500,000. And his force even captured Brigadier General Crittenden and his entire staff. Union goods were destroyed as well, and their cost was estimated anywhere from one quarter to one million dollars. Not only had Forrest confused and wreaked havoc, he used his prisoners to transport the goods back to Confederate hands. Afterwards, they were paroled. The victory helped to push the Federals back toward Nashville and delayed Buell's offensive plans that July. All in all, it wasn't a bad birthday. Eight days later, on Monday, July 21st, Forrest was promoted to Brigadier General. He also irritated a multitude of Union officers. One was U.S. Grant. He wanted federal cavalry officers, Colonels Abel D. Strait and Benjamin Grierson, to adopt Forrest and fellow raider John Hunt Morgan's raiding tactics in Tennessee and Mississippi. Grant also wanted federal raids to cover his own offensive movements in the theater. To do that, Colonel Strait left Nashville on April the 10th. His route led him eventually from federally held Fort Henry to Eastport, Mississippi. And by Thursday, April the 30th, 1863, he and his hand-picked force of some 2,000 were camped at Sand Mountain in northeastern Alabama. His mission was twofold disrupt Confederate railroads supplying Chattanooga, and hit Forrest. What he didn't figure was that when made aware, Forrest was going to hit him first. The next day, the Confederate general's brother, Captain William Forrest, struck Strait's rear as the Federals headed eastward through Day's Gap. To Strait's credit, he devised an ambush that worked twice. The Federal rear guard fell back to the main body, and of course, Forrest's men pursued. At about 11 a.m. of that Thursday, Federals hid on both sides of the route, and as the mounted Confederates rode by, rose and delivered a stunning surprise. About 30 were killed, and several more wounded, including William, who took a bullet which smashed one of his thigh bones, and so incapacitated was captured. There would be another casualty, if you will, one that incensed Bedford Forrest, a lieutenant Confederate by the name of A. Willis Gould, who, much to the chagrin of Forrest, abandoned two field pieces in the melee. Filled with rage, Forrest ordered his entire command into the fray, and so a five-hour fight ensued, a running one. Six miles down the road from the initial encounter, Forrest's men caught up to Strait's cavalry, and the fighting intensified. In it, Forrest had three mounts shot out from under him and was stung by the realization that Strait's ambushes had inflicted blows, and he desperately wanted to answer them. Though frustrated, he was pleased at one point in the pursuit to find his two lost guns, but both had been spiked. That only added to Forrest's fury, and under a bright moon, the pursuit continued. As he put it to his men, 
Whenever you see anything blue, shoot at it and do all you can to keep up the skier. Another scrap took place around 2 or 3 a.m. of May the 1st. By 10 a.m. of that Friday, Strait's harassed column reached Blountsville, Alabama, some 43 miles east of Day's Gap where the fight had originally begun. Both sides were exhausted, but the Confederates were less fatigued because Forrest had used his men in shifts. He pared his men down to some 600 at a time, and while some rested, others continued the chase. As the dogged pursuit continued, straight at a bridge over Black Creek burned, the body of water now impassable. Forrest himself rode up and interrogated a 16-year-old girl who lived on a farm by the side of the road. Her name was Emma Sansom, and Forrest wanted her to tell him of a proper place where he and his men could ford and continue the chase. She knew of a trail about 200 yards above the bridge, and agreed to show him, but she needed to saddle a horse. Rather than wait, Forrest said, There is no time to saddle a horse. Get up here behind me. And off they rode as the girl's mother ran out of the farmhouse and asked where they were going. To her, the girl's mother, Forrest, responded, She is going to show me a ford where I can get my men over in time to catch those Yankees. Don't be uneasy. I will bring her back safe. And so he rode with her guidance, located the crossing, and the relentless pursuit continued. Strait and his mounted element were by Saturday, May the 2nd, close to Gadsden, Alabama. Their objective, Rome, Georgia, and it was some 50 miles away. Although their horse and men were used up, Forest Force continued to dog their enemy. By 4 p.m. of that day and just outside of Gadsden, Strait rested and fed his men. And that's where forced force fell upon them and, of course, again attacked. Strait's men and horses had no choice but to push on. At 9 a.m. of Sunday, May the 3rd, 1863, at Cedar Bluff, Alabama, Forrest hit again. And this time by some of his troopers who were actually ahead of Strait between his force and Rome, Georgia. It was then that the Confederate general demanded surrender. From Forrest, a familiar message. He wrote that he had a superior force and promised the sword to any who refused to surrender. Straight, with the advice of subordinates, wanted proof that his 1,466 men were outnumbered. While they negotiated, no Confederate would be allowed to move any closer. As they talked, two Confederate guns that had managed to keep up rolled into view. Straight protested, and Forrest ordered them to retire. A few minutes later, two more rolled up at another vantage point. Told to fall back to honor Straight's wishes, two more showed up elsewhere. Finally, Straight blurted, Name of God, how many guns have you got? That's 15 I've counted already. The force responded, I reckon that's all that has kept up. In truth, the two guns were always the same. And adding to the charade, Forrest had also given earlier orders to couriers, who now raced up to him announcing new units, phantom units, I might add, were now on the field 
and orders were given to fall back or hold their position while the two negotiated. In the midst of all this performance, Forrest lamented he had no more room amidst his crowded lines. Straight went back to his officers to discuss their seemingly outnumbered situation. Finally, about noon of May the 3rd, just about the time that Forrest ordered his bugler to sound to mount, Straight caved in. Let's recap the pursuit. Forrest and his original force began its operation at 1 a.m. on the morning of Wednesday, April the 29th. They covered 33 miles to reach Day's Gap on Sand Mountain the next day, April the 30th, and fought all that Thursday and into the night. In pursuit of Straits Force, they reached Blountsville, Alabama the next morning, May the 1st at 10 a.m., 76 miles from their starting point. Over the course of 57 hours, Forrest and his men had been in the saddle for 52. The pursuit continued on to Gadsden, Alabama, another 43 miles, and then continued on to Lawrence, Alabama, 31 miles east of Gadsden. The pursuit of Colonel Abel Strait and his 2,000 hand-picked Union force covered 150 miles. It ended Sunday. May 3rd, when Strait surrendered 1,466 men to a Confederate force that started with some 1,200 and now was down to fewer than 600. When the federal officer learned the truth, he protested only to have Forrest answer, Ah, Colonel, all is fair in love and war, you know. All this demonstrated the superhuman energy that Forrest possessed, and a mind that played upon the psyche and psychology of his enemy. And oh, the tricks he used during the course of the war. The beating of kettle drums to sound like marching infantry. The lighting and tending to numerous campfires at night to give impression of a larger force. Moving guns about and parading dismounted cavalry to look like infantry. And Forrest's tactics did not go unnoticed. Major General D.H. Hill, a Confederate general who was a tough man to impress, was impressed. His was magnificent behavior, as Hill put it. Hill particularly liked Forrest's use of dismounted cavalry. Not one to hold his tongue, Hill constantly carped at the mounted arm in the east and even went so far as to offer $50 to any man who sees a dead body with spurs on. And by September of 1863, the two would finally serve together. It would be at the great and terrible Battle of Chickamauga, which was fought September the 19th and 20th. And that is where we'll pick up the story of the Wizard of the Saddle. When next we gather, we'll continue the story of Old Bed. We'll recount his fiery relationship with Confederate General Braxton Bragg, marvel in his continued ingenious tactics at the battles of Okolona and Bryce's Crossroads. And yes, bring to light the controversies that still dog Forrest's reputation. The massacre at Fort Pillow 
his post-war role as Grand Wizard of the KKK's Invisible Empire. I hope you'll join us for Nathan Bedford Forrest, Part 2. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.